Hello, and welcome to Order Within, navigating a world of endless chaos and crisis. Many of us are experiencing inner turmoil, insecurity, anxiety, fears, and isolation. These feelings are only being amplified by news cycles, social media, and never-ending political madness. How do we find our way out of the chaos? How do we find strength within ourselves? How do we find meaning in a world driven by materialism? These questions and many more I aim to answer on the show. My goal is to be a trusted guide on your journey to selfhood. May you find what you seek. Hello and welcome everyone. I'm your host, Brandon Ward, back with another episode of Order Within. Got an awesome guest today. Josh Willard is joining us. Josh is an interesting individual. He is in the business space, but has a very nuanced and unique background. We're going to dive into that today. I'm excited to talk with him about it. Josh, is his mission is to help good people build profitable lives and achieve extraordinary goals. He believes business should support your life and dreams rather than the other way around. Josh has leveraged 20 years as a coach, counselor, and consultant to create the Profit Flow System and the Ex Exit Accelerator, which transforms businesses from stressful jobs into stress-free cash-flowing assets that his clients could sell for a premium or keep for generations. Living from his own values, personal responsibility, freedom, faith, and abundance, Joss believes success comes from giving and receiving more than expected. Josh, welcome to the show, my friend. Happy to be here. Happy to be here. Well, I'm glad you're here, man. I love that intro, by the way. I think that's great. That's one of the things that connected uh, us. I'm a new business broker. Yep. You're active on LinkedIn. You serve business brokers in some form or fashion, or work with them in some fashion. Maybe not yep. serve them is the right way, but, um, but similar spaces. You're helping helping entrepreneurs get high value exits where you can, which is always yep. always nice for a lot of these owners who've spent 10, 20 plus years in their businesses, huh? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I think you were right the first time. I think there is a certain amount of service for business brokers because, you know, like, as we talked about, you know, you guys right now in, in the economy that we're in are getting slammed by people going, Hey, I think I want to, I want to sell my business or I'm looking at selling my business. And, and you look at it and you're like, well, okay, my job is to list this business and help you get the best buyer possible, but you're not ready, man. Right. And, <laughs> Which and is like, a lot. Well, I don't want to hear that. <laughs> so, so it's like, how about we make it easy for everybody? And and let you, you know, help you guys do your jobs by having good businesses to list from owners that are ready to exit and helping the business owners get ready to exit and helping the business be successful so that whoever buys it buys something good. So I think it's win-win all around. Service all around. Very nice. I dig it. I, I like it too. And it's, I think that's one of the things you and I connected with on initially was just that mission-oriented component. You're, yep. You seem to very much believe in the, the giver's gain aspect too, with a lot of the content that you give, the, that you provide, the value that you create. But I, for me, something that really stood out about your background when we first spoke was you, you have a, I, I guess everyone has a, you can, if you really get into the details, right, everyone's got a unique journey to what brings them to where, yeah. where they are today. But um, okay. one of the things about, the, you, you were kind of a, a coach counselor accidentally early on in your life and it kind of, so much so that your parents had yeah. to buy you a phone, yeah? Yeah, yeah. So back in the days, so it, just in case the gray on the face didn't give it away, I'm, I'm <laughs> back when I was a kid, phones were attached to buildings. And so you, you, you called a number, not a person, and you hoped the right person answered. 
but yeah, when I was a kid in high school, um, I grew up in a little town, um, in Alaska called Soldata. So I think we had about 5,000 people in the town and about 35,000 people in the surrounding area. And, uh, so I didn't know everybody. We had what, we had three or four high schools in the area, um, of the, that served at 35,000 or whatever. And, and I went to one of them. So the creatively named Soldatna high school. And, uh, I was, I was that weird kid. I wasn't, I wasn't like in with the in crowd, but it wasn't a big enough school that you could be too far out. I think we had, I think there were like 118 kids in my graduating class. Mm. I know people who had 18 in their graduating class, so <laughs> it's okay. But, but the point was I knew some folks, I wasn't one of the super popular kids, but I was the kid that kind of on the sly people would call or like grab in the hallways and be like, Hey, Josh, can I talk to you about something? And I was, I was like, okay, sure. What are we talking about? And, you know, it'd be like, well, so-and-so says you're a friend or a good person to listen to or a good person to talk to. Be like, all right, cool. Um, but it got to the point where I was getting phone calls in the middle of the night on school nights from people I didn't know. And um, my parents got tired of the phone on their side of the house ringing and waking them up. And so they actually agreed to get me a phone number on my side of the house. And so I and I just moved the phone into my bedroom because my little sister didn't didn't like being woken up by the phone. So I, I slept right next to the phone and it wasn't every day. It wasn't even necessarily multiple times a week, but every now and again, you know, a couple, once or twice a week or two, three times a month, the phone would ring and be in the middle of the night. Hello. Like, yeah, is this Joss? Yes. You don't know me. Why are you calling? <laughs> um, right. But so-and-so who's a friend of so-and-so and, -so. and they sometimes, sometimes I'd get the person right away. Like, oh, okay. You're, you know, a friend of mine. Okay. I know who you are. Yeah. Let's talk. Um, or they'd go like three or four names deep before I'm like, I think I know who that person is. And they've told other people that I'm a good person to talk. Okay, great. So you'd get up, stagger out to the kitchen, drink, you know, just chug an entire, we weren't, we were Pepsi family, not a Coke family, mm. not, whatever. So, you know, the drink the entire continues. Pepsi. <laughs> yeah. Drink half, you know, one and a half, get, get, get halfway through the second one, stagger back. Okay. Caffeine's kicking in, go. <laughs> right. And then they'd start talking and all I really knew how to do at that point was ask questions like, okay, so you're telling me this, this, oh yeah, yeah. That's what you, you, you totally understand. Okay, cool. So what do you get? What do you want to do about it? Well, I want to, you know, and, and I learned that you could, a lot of those calls were circular. Like you'd have they'd say, this is what's going on. You're like, okay. So you ask some clarifying questions and like, yeah. And they say, okay, well, so it seems like you're saying you have this problem and you want this result. Well, would the answer not be this action? And they'd always go something along those, yeah, but like, yeah. oh, okay. Right. And then they'd go through the whole story again and you'd be like, okay. It sounds like you just said, you couldn't say, it sounds like you just said what you just, you know, you just took <laughs> half an hour to say the thing that you said half an hour ago. He's like, okay, so it sounds like you said this, this, and this, and maybe there was a little detail or something. Okay, here's why I get it. Right. But just it's like, so wouldn't the action be pretty much the same thing usually? Like, yeah, yeah, but like, okay, well, what's the but? Well, and you'd get the story again. And usually it was in cycles of three. And by the time they'd finished the third time, they'd throw in another detail or something that they hadn't mentioned the first time or whatever. And so sometimes my question about what the advice would be or what the action would be would change a little bit, or sometimes it would change significantly. But at some point, usually by the end of the third one, I'm like, okay, 
it's now four o'clock in the morning or whatever. Um, so it seems like what you're saying is A, B, C, and D. Is that right? Yes. Okay, great. What do you think the answer is? And once I'd get to what do you think the answer is, rather than me trying to say, isn't the answer this or isn't the answer that? I get, well, what do you think the answer is? And it'd be like, sometimes the, 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 the best ones were, you're so smart. They'd be like, I, what did I say? I just asked, what do you think the answer is? And they'd be like, you're so smart. It's that, you're right, it's this. Right? And it'd be the same thing from before. It was like, well, it's not about me being smart. And sometimes it, sometimes it, you're so smart, will be followed by it's this. And it's the thing that I had not said, thing that I had not even suspected, just like, but apparently I was the wise one. And so I did not know this because this was back in the early, late 80s, early 90s. Um, but this is the beginnings of what is called coaching. Coaching. Mm. Um, where you, you ask them the questions and, and you, as a coach, you generally speaking are trying to help the person you're talking to find the answers within themselves or figure the answer out for themselves, as opposed to consulting where you're giving the answer or mentoring where you're sharing what your answer was when you were going through a similar thing. That's kind of the, how you, you separate the three. And I use all three in my, in my practice, but as a kid, that's, I just, it was the, the, what do you think the answer is? I think originally came out of frustration. Because like most kids or particularly males, you know, you've got usually a female on the other end of the phone going, da, 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 here are my problems. Here's all the things going wrong. I'm like, well, isn't the answer this? Because <laughs> you're trying to serve up answers to help. And when I stopped trying to serve up answers and just started going, well, is this what you're saying? Yes. Is this what you want? Yes. Is this the problem? Yes. Okay. What do you think the answer is? Quite often they'd figure it out and then give me the credit for it and be like, okay, cool. Can I go to sleep now? Great. <laughs> and then you'd see him at school the next day and they would continue to pretend that they didn't know who you were and onward you would go. And so that was, that was part of my life as a, as a kid. Um, and I, I don't know how deeply you want me to go down this particular wormhole, but part of that came from when I was in junior high school, I had taken up an, an interest in psychology and therapy. And I don't remember why. Um, cause I was, I, I, I didn't think of myself as that kind of a kid. I was, a, I, I liked reading fantasy and science fiction. I would play games. I hung out with my friends. Like I wasn't, I wasn't, you know, reading histories of, of Sigmund Freud or, or trying, you know, like none of that was on my radar, but just for some reason I kind of got into therapy for a bit. And my mom arranged for me to interview some therapists as part of a project for school. Hmm. Um, and so I got to sit down with two different therapists and kind of interview them. One, we went to lunch and one uh, was the mother of a friend of mine and she did it. She was a family therapist and the other guy, I don't remember what he was. And then, um, was that junior high? That actually might've been great. That might actually might've been sixth grade. Wow. Because shortly after that, my mom, who was a teacher and kind of the driving factor in, in my family, um, she, her left foot started to tingle a little bit. And, you know, for the guest kids, we didn't even know that was going on. Um, but within 18 months, she went from her left foot tingles a little bit to in a wheelchair with no short-term memory. Like she had a five minute reset on her short-term memory and significant personality, uh, changes. Um, and the prognosis that she would never walk again. 
And it turned out that, that it was the fastest prog progressing case of multiple sclerosis that had ever been seen. And this was 88, 89, somewhere in there. Wow. No, actually, no, it was before that. 89 is when I went to high school. So this was before I was, this was as I was going into junior high. Mm. Um, or between grade seven, I was 12, 13 years old. That's, that's all I know. Um, and so our family had to move and a bunch of other stuff. And so when mom got that diagnosis, they brought us all into a room and they brought in a therapist to kind of talk to the family. It turned out it was the guy that I had inter interviewed. Huh. Um, so that was awkward, small town. Mm -hmm. So, so that was a little awkward, but it was, it was what it was. And then, uh, the summer between eighth grade and, and high school, ninth grade, um, a friend of mine died by gunshot and pretty sure at this point, although it was never fully confirmed to me that it was, that it was self-inflicted. Hmm. Uh, the story that was told by his family was that he had dropped the gun. Hmm. Um, but I think that was more to sort of spare feelings and things. And, and, and knowing what I know now and kind of looking back on ways that we interacted and some other things, he was a troubled kid. He had a, he had a lot going on. Um, I can see now at the time I vehemently, like anybody suggested that he had shot himself. I would be like in their face, the story, that's not it, right? Right. Cause I was a kid in front of mine and, and it hurt. Um, but now looking back, I think, eh, probably that he did. But the point was, or shortly came to school and found out about it that oh, day and they sort wow. of made an announcement and I remember hearing it in class and I remember pulling my hat down over my head because I was, I was a kid who I, I wore baseball hats. Um, I pulled my hat down over my face and I remember the teacher saying to somebody, and I don't know who it was, um, I think we have another one for you. And uh, she said it very kind, you know, in a kind tone, but it was, it was clear. So what they had done is they'd gathered the, those of us kids who had been deeply affected by it, friends of his, people that know him, people that just couldn't handle the idea into the library to sort of gather and grieve and, and keep us, mm. you know, sort of, and they brought in a therapist, the guy that I had interviewed. <laughs> so it was like, Hey, it's, it's Brian again. Cool. How are you? Um, so I kind of got to see therapy from sort of both sides uh, of the spectrum, both sides of the issue. And they had, a, it, from some of them, I had, from him and, and the lady that I had talked to, uh, who was a friend of mine's mom. And actually that friend, he and I became really close that year. We sort of led the school's memorial for uh, this kid who had died. Mm. And I wound up spending some time at his house and hanging out and for a while. So that was cool. But um, they had told me some of the techniques of psychology and how they work and, and, and you know, why they do certain things that they do as part of my, my interview with them. I mean, as much as you tell a, a sixth grade kid. <laughs> yeah. um, but then we're, there we are in these conversations where I'm on on the couch as it were, and I see them using the tools mm. and I'm like, I know what you're doing. And they're like, yeah. It's like, Ouch. and, and I, so I've all ever since that I've had this sort of dichotomy, whenever I see somebody using psychological tools, I usually recognize it. Mm. Sometimes they'll still work on me. Um, sometimes they don't because I get too caught up in, I see what you're doing and I don't want to be manipulated and, and, and blah, blah, blah. Um, but I, the, it gets frustrating because I know all these tools. Now I have a bunch of these tools in my arsenal and I use them on myself mm. just reflexively. I don't, I don't get to enjoy being angry anymore. Like 
I get mad because because 90% of the time when, whenever we get angry, it's a significance issue. We feel like we're being made to feel less significant than we mm. believe we should be. Or we feel like somebody else is being made to be less significant. And that goes into um, uh, human needs psychology and, and some other things. But mm. so I know these tools. And so when I get when I get angry, just like anybody else, it's because I feel like I've been injured. I feel like my significance has been is out of whack or something's not fair, et cetera. And so I'm Whenever you get angry like that, you're wanting to feel that anger because it gives you back that sense of significance. Mm. But my tool is going to work. And I'm like, hey, wait, no, I don't want to let this go yet. I know that I'm being irrational. I know that it's not right, but I don't want to let this go. I still want to enjoy being angry. And no, it's like, crap. Well, so um, anyway, sorry, long wa wandering, rambling story. Um, take it from here. <laughs> what else no, that's great. No, that so it, it started, it sounds like those early stage events, though, that happened with your mom, your friend. They, they influenced your journey in terms of coaching and influencing the lives of others, it sounds like. So I would, I would guess, Joss, since you experienced some tough things early on in, in your career, in your life, that experience helped you navigate some choppy waters for other folks. And it sounds like you were kind of being more of a mirror in a lot of ways, leveraging some of those things you've learned as, as uh, you're getting the calls late in the evening, as, mm -hmm. uh, you know, two to three times a month. It's interesting too. It sounds like it was mostly females that were reaching out to you. Is usually yeah. yeah. Guys, guys would grab you in the hallway for a quick for a quick conversation. Girls Got would it. call you and talk or for me anyway. I don't know. I don't know about. I, I shouldn't speak for anybody. I don't know what anybody else's experience was like back <laughs> yeah. then. I know what mine was. Yeah. But so those those early lessons though that you gained, you know, as a, a kid in sixth grade, learning about what happened with your mom, your friend, and then moving in through high school and moving up. It sounds like that capacity for people to to be open with you to share things with you stuck with you and and you've carried it on throughout your career because you carried on into the navy you joined the navy right you joined the military army actually army, my, two, sorry. my two best friends went my, no it's okay my two best friends went into the navy because they were all they were going to go off and become navy seals and i went i'm not that hard <laughs> and if i if i if you don't make it as a seal you wind up on a boat somewhere basically sitting behind a desk kind of a thing and it's like i don't know that i want to do that I'll, I'll join the army where i get to do some of the fun things that seals get to do um, without having to go through becoming a SEAL. And actually I signed up to become an army ranger, uh, but messed up my knees and, and, and that actually is what wound up getting me sent to Korea. I messed up my knees in jump school, got my, uh, not that it really matters, got my jump wings, jumping out of airplanes. But then, uh, the ranger said, yeah, you got busted up knees and probably not the place for you. Okay, great. So then I was, I no longer had a ranger contract. So I was at needs of the army. So they could send me wherever they wanted to send me. And so they sent me to Korea for a year because I was a single guy and Korea's an unaccompanied tour. And, and all right, send him to Korea. So I went to Korea. And while I was in Korea, I was, I was assigned to an infantry unit because I was trained to jump out of airplanes and blow up tanks like a good infantryman. And, uh, but my knees were still messed up. And um, the chaplain, just the way Korea is set up, it's a one-year unaccompanied tour and they try and plan for when people are going to come in. And it's a, this was back, this was between deserts. So, mm. um, first the technically the, the liberation of Kuwait, not really the Iraq war, but the liberation of Kuwait happened while I was in high school. I joined the army after it was over and then 9-11 happened after I got out of the army. So it was still kind of a peacetime army, but there'd been some folks who were, so the army was still kind of trying to figure out who it was again. Mm. Um, and there was a shortage of people going different places. And so I was in, I was there, the chaplain's assistant got sent, um, went back home cause it, that's what he was supposed to do. And they informed the chaplain, 
you're not going to get a trained chaplain's assistant for another two months or three months, something like that, um, because we just don't have one to give you yet. So this is just sort of how it went. And, and he, for better or for worse, whether he's right or he's wrong, he said, well, I can't function without an assistant. So he went to the battalion and said, give, I, I need an assistant. You need to detail me an assistant. And the chaplain, he was, he was one of those kind of guys. He was kind of demanding. He, um, <clears throat> and he came from a certain uh, denomination and outlook that was pretty hardcore, um, very fire and brimstone-y. And mm. hey, that, if that's your thing, that's your thing, great. Um, but he was very demanding. And so they were like, well, Willard's knees are messed up. The chaplain assistant basically just drives the chaplain around um, files paperwork and sets up that little portable altar when he goes out to do services in the field. So, you know, Willard, go do it. It's like, all right. Um, and so I wound up going to work for him. And actually, as it turns out, the chaplain's assistants get, I think, I, I can't remember if it's eight months or a year of training uh, back then. I don't know what it is today, but back then they got eight months or a year of training. And in, in that training includes a certain amount of training and counseling, mm. um, which I didn't get because the chaplains in the, in, in the U.S. Army at the time, um, if they were asked to do something that went against the doctrine of their particular religious denomination or belief, they weren't required to do it other than certain things, you know, yeah, salute and, you know, follow army regulations, et cetera, et cetera. But there are certain things that they were not required to do, particularly in, in the space of religious activities. So you can't force a, a Catholic chaplain to, um, to give a, 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 a Hindu service of some kind, that, that kind of thing. I right? see. Yep. Yep. Um, but so for this guy, his deal was if he couldn't solve your problems with a fire and brimstone speech or, uh, something from, um, one of the Proverbs, uh, yeah, Proverbs, there's 32 chapters in Proverbs, right? 31, 31 chapters. I think it's yeah, anyway, 31. Yeah. So, um, we would read whatever the date was. So today's like October 2nd or something. We would read second, you know, Proverbs chapter two. The third was Proverbs chapter three. And if there were only 30 days in the month, well, we were reading 31 and 32 on the same. Anyway, um, so, but that was basically his thing. If he couldn't fix you by, if you couldn't fix whatever your problem was with a good fire and brimstone speech or a, or a point at Proverbs, it was outside of his doctrine. Mm. Basically, I'm over simple and I'm not being fair to him, but that basically was kind of how he came across to people. So I wound up doing like all of the counts. So I was, so here I am, this 20 year old kid who's, got messed up knees. All of my military training is jumping out of airplanes and blowing up tanks and, and shooting at people. And I got guys coming in who are dealing with addictions. I've got guys who are dealing with, uh, you know, the fact that they're 4,000 miles away from their daughter on her 16th birthday, um, or missing their kid's first start as the starting quarterback on the football team, or they're convinced their spouse is cheating on them, or oops, they accidentally cheated on their spouse because mm. it was always an act, unless it was revenge. Um, or, you know, things like that, all the way up to suicidal ideology. I mean, I was dealing with guys who were, this was back in the don't ask, don't tell era. So guys who were, hey, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm gay. You can't tell anybody, right? And I'm like, yeah, no, I can't. Um, so I don't know what to do. What am I supposed to do with this? And so helping all of that. And all I had to go with was, so what you're saying is ABC? Yep. And your problem is XYZ? Yeah. Okay. So what do you think the answer is? Like the same thing from, from high school, right. basically, yeah, that you this, were doing. That's, that's the only thing that kept me and those poor people afloat was my stuff from high school. And then some of the tools that I had learned 
from these therapists that I had met as a kid, mm-hmm. right? And, and kind of, and I had done some, a little bit of reading because I'd gotten interested in it going through that. So I'd, I'd read some things and some health helps, some self-help stuff here, but I never felt like, oh, let me, you know what Tony Robbins says? No, it wasn't ever that. It was just like, hey, have you considered maybe this? Yeah, you're so smart. Cool. <laughs> Thank you for not killing yourself. I can't tell anybody about this. But like, mm-hmm. So that was my deal. And I figured I could handle it for a few months. And then the new chaplain's assistant got there the guy who was actually a trained chaplain assistant who was supposed to relieve me and I would go back to being a normal soldier. And I'm, he was there for a week or two and he had a, his, his wife back home was pregnant. And I think with their third or fourth kid, something like that. And he was a really nice guy, really peaceful guy. And he, he, he was definitely from a different, he was a strong religious guy, but he was definitely from a different viewpoint from the chaplain. Like mm. he was, fire and brimstone were not him, <clears throat> right? So he wasn't necessarily getting along really well with the chaplain. They weren't fight. He just, he wasn't comfortable. And he had all this other stuff going on. And one night I'm in my room and I'm, something says, you know what, just go look out the window. I just was, I was like, I don't normally go look out my window for no reason, but for some reason I was like, I'm going to go look out the window. So I went and looked out the window and down in the quad, there's some guy walking around, clearly talking to himself, clearly agitated. Mm. I'm like, what the, all right. So I throw a coat on, it's snowing. I go downstairs. I'm like, hey buddy, how's it going? It's him. The chaplain and, assistant. Yeah. Mm. And he was not doing well. Um, in fact, he was, he was at, he wasn't at fully suicidal ideation yet, but he was, he was in that neighborhood. Wow. And so we had a good long conversation and there's uh, he's like, I just, I don't, I don't think I can do this. I don't think I can be here. Like, well. Uh, what do you think the answer is? And he's like, I think I need to go tell someone that I, that I need to go home. And it was peacetime army, so he could do it. There's a way to, that you could do it. And I don't remember everything. Now, but that's what he wound up doing. He wound up going home. Wow. So it's like, hey, guess who gets to stay as the chaplain's assistant for a while? Um, <clears throat> so I got it. That got extended. Eventually, we got an actual chaplain's assistant there. And he came in and, and replaced me. And, and I went back to being a regular soldier. Um, I'd still had messed up knees, so I... I was doing some other things, but I didn't go back in line. But it was that like six months, I guess, that I was a chaplain's assistant. Wow. Doing all of this. And, and the internet back then was dial up AOL, which from Korea was going to be like, that, I, was, I couldn't go Google, hey, what's the answer? How do I do this? You know, what is, what is cognitive behavioral therapy? Like that didn't even exist then. You know, is 20 years old trying to figure out how to help people not kill themselves or, or navigate whatever was going on. And, and all I had was this, you know, some say this natural talent. I'm not a huge believer in natural talent. I think, I think it exists. And I think it, it, if it takes effect mostly at the bottom 5% and the top 5%, or if you compare two people who, who have worked the same, um, have put in the same amount of effort and work and training to build their skills. If one's got talent, they'll be ab- mm. above the other one. Or if one is seriously lacking in talent. Like if, if I try to go swim against Michael Phelps, dude has his like 12 foot wingspan and dinner plates for, for hands and feet, right? Even if I had been a professional swimmer and worked just as hard as he had, he's going to beat me because he's taller. He's got longer arms. He's got that, that, right? But, yep. you know, if I worked as hard as Michael Phelps had worked his entire life, even though I'm 5'10 and my hands aren't that big, you know, like I'm probably going to beat most people who didn't work as hard as me 
even if they had more natural talent. Like mm-hmm. it depends on how much talent there would like. Generally, it, it comes into play mostly at that top and bottom ends. And that comes out of a book called um, Mindset by Carol Dweck. She mm-hmm. talks about yep. that. Love that book, man. That Honestly, yeah. that book changed my life too, by the way. You posted about that the other day. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We, yeah, we talked about that. Yep. So, so from there, that's kind of my same, I, I feel the same as she does about how a natural talent kicks in. But I'd built this skill set or just had these experiences where I'd managed to pick up some, some skill set. And I think that that got me through it. And, and it built my interest in moving the levers in people's heads and, and um, doing it in a way that is ethical and is um, positive. And at that point, I decided I didn't want to be a therapist. The more I dug into therapy, especially as I got into codes of, and I'm going to use air quotes around ethics, <laughs> um, that, that therapists and the coaches are supposed to use. And, and we go a long way down the, see me down the road of what I think coaching is and isn't and, and certain organizations that I think suck, mm. but, um, we don't have to do that. We're, we're not, <laughs> uh, the, the long and the short of it is the more I learned about it, the more I was like, you know what? I don't want to be a therapist. Um, and I have some good therapist friends, which sounds weird. Um, I have some, I have some friends who are therapists that agree with this whenever mm. I say it is for me, most therapy basically comes in the form of passively, aggressively manipulating your clients to make choices that you believe are healthier for them than the ones that they're currently making. Mm. There are other therapists that lose their minds when I say that. And, and it's okay. Like it's, I'm overstating when I say that, but I've got other, I've got friends who are therapists who are like, yeah, that kind of sums up the way most therapy is done. Mm. Um, so, but I got more into the coaching side of things and the, the, still being able to move those levers. And I've started learning, I started learning a bunch of uh, tools, studying a bunch of tools in different types and schools of therapy. I'm a big fan of the cognitive model um, and some other things, but I'm not a therapist. I don't practice therapy. I don't ever want to practice therapy, but there is, um, there's a school out there that was called strategic family therapy. I don't know if it's still, how strong it, it still is. Um, but one of the early practitioners in that school, I think one of the founders of that school was Chloe Madonna's and she was, uh, she learned from Erickson who was like the father of modern hypnotherapy. Mm. Um, so there's geeking out way too much here, but no, but this is great, Joss. This is great. Their, their thing was the strategic family therapy. Fundamentally, it came down to, um, and I don't want to get into the history and the why necessarily, but they realized they had more effect with their particular types of clients instead of just using the tools to fix the client. And, and those, these clients generally had to go back into whatever situation it was that they had come out of. So, and what they'd found was when they used their tools to help the client, and then the client went back into those situations, they were trying, the clients, and this is, this is, this is the gospel according to Joss. This is, this is my summation of it. Um, they would find that while they were trying to defend their own changes from the people and the were, who were used to them being a different, a different way before those people would, would punch past those changes. And eventually the person would collapse and go back to their, their mm. own way. Um, whereas they found if instead they taught the person, this is what I'm doing. This is the concept that we're looking at. If you do this, or when I do this, it's going to move this lever in your head this way. And you know, if you, if you too talk to people in this way, or use this tool with other people around you, it will move the levers in their heads in that way, or it has the potential to move the levers in, 
uh, in their heads in that way. And so what if in effect what they did, and this wasn't their intent, and again, this is Joss, right, <laughs> saying this, what they did is instead of having them go in on the defensive, defending their changes, they put them in on the offensive. So they were using these tools with the people around them. And while it usually didn't have a huge effect on the people around them, because you generally have to want to make changes in order for any of these tools to, to be helpful. What it did is it, instead of those people being able to attack you and say, hey, you need to be the person, Brandon, that I've known before, they'd be like, hey, I'm not sure what you're doing here. And, and it, it was basically putting them on the offensive. Mm. And so when, instead of me saying, no, I'm a new Joss, I would just go in, hey, no, this is me, this is Joss. By the way, Brandon, would you like to be the new Brandon? Mm. And you're like, no, I'm cool with who I am. You're like, cool, well, I'm cool with that. And so they didn't see that push, that, that backsliding as much. Mm. So for me, that was fascinating. Um, again, I've butchered how they explain it. It's just, it's just the way I, the way I explain it. I don't know if you ever talked to Chloe Madonna's or any of the people who were part of strategic family therapy, if they would say that that's what they did. But for me, that's, that's kind of how it read. Um, and so I've, I'm a big fan of that. So whenever I work with a client, uh, or even if I'm talking to someone, my kids, my wife, whoever, and I'm like, Hey, look, here's this tool. This is what it does. I will always tell them I'm about to move this tool. You should experience this change or this, you know, this, hmm. this experience, let me know how it goes. And we do the thing and they go, oh yeah, I see that. Or it's different. Or it's like, and it, it gives them a tool. And if nothing else, it gives them that space to go, oh, hey, there's a tool for this. Mm. And, and, and so instead of just mindlessly reacting to things, nobody completely mindlessly reacts to anything, but instead of doing that fast jump through, I see this thing or experience this thing, I decide what it means and I respond to what I think it means. We go, hey, I've just experienced this thing. Let me use this tool to shuffle through and see if I can I figure see. out the reaction or whatever it's going to be, right? So they know what's going on. Now, the vast majority of people, the vast majority of the time, even if they know the tool exists, they don't use it. It's like if you go to the gym and you know that the 50-pound dumbbell is there, you're not, you, you, you've, you've never lifted anything heavier than a full fork in your life. You're not going to be able to just go and start doing curls with that 50-pound <laughs> yeah. dumbbell, right? But you know it's there and you're like, you know, maybe I could, maybe I could learn how to start building that muscle. Mm. Um, so mixed metaphors all over the place, but that's kind of what I've learned to do and what I like doing as opposed to just, you know, being the guy on the chair, um, mm. with a, with a notepad going, so tell me about, you know, talk therapy. Cause it's kind of uh, playing into a lot of the authority or you're, you're kind of playing the authoritative figure. You're playing, you're, you're in the power seat in a lot of ways, aren't you? Joss, when you're, when you're playing the, not maybe playing isn't the right word, but when you're in the therapeutic role, I feel like there is definitely a power dynamic that exists there between client or, or therapist. Yeah. And when I, th I, I think so. I, but I also think that that, um, that can vary significantly depending on why that person is there. Like, um, and I think there's sometimes there's, there's good reason to have a power dynamic. Um, like you get the folks who are required to attend therapy, right? As mm. part of criminal proceedings or like, or to keep their job or whatever you got to go. Yeah. Through. Yep. Like that can be weird and different. Um, for me, it's interesting reading about how other therapists, um, handle that kind of thing. Uh, there are some that don't, there are some that like, no, I'm my role here. There, there are, there are role dynamics. 
right? Where it's like, my role here is to have a conversation with you, be the therapist, listen to what you have to say and have a relationship with you where you can trust me and that we can work on whatever it is. The others who say my role here is to be the one who determines whether or not you're allowed to ever see your, your family again. Mm. Right. And I don't know. I don't want to besmirch. That's like, fair. If there are therapists listening to this, there's going to be folks screaming right now. Oh yeah. <laughs> right. That's not the way it should go. It's, just, it's like, and look, I'm, I've already, I've already kind of besmirched the profession by saying what I said about, you know, <laughs> passively aggressively manipulating your clients into making better choices or what you think are better choices. <laughs> um, but there, there are perfectly good therapists out there trying very hard to do perfectly good things. And I don't know. There are so many schools of therapy um, and, and philosophies around therapy and psychotherapy. And then when you start mixing in psychiatry, you know, which is where you start bringing in the medical side of things and, and all of that and the neurochemistry and, and that kind of fun stuff, there's, a, there's so much out there. I, I don't pretend to know it all. I know what I've experienced. I know what friends of mine have said to me. I know what I've read from people who have who are in the profession. Um, I think I, I have had clients that I've worked with that because they're working with both a coach and a therapist at the same time, they see exponential results. Like it's mm. therapist and the coach get each other and they know what, what they're doing. It's not like we collude and be like, Hey, what's the best thing we could do? Right. But no, the, the, the therapist understands what the coach's tools are and how the coach is working. And the coach understands the therapist's tools and what they like to use and how they're coming at. When you have those two things working together at the same time and they align, man, it can, it can do amazing things for a client. If you get a coach and a therapist that are the opposite of that, that don't have respect for each other or each other's tools, like, man, you can just mess a client up all day long. Um, and that ain't, that ain't good. Um, and if you're just a little off here or there, who knows? It can be anywhere in between. Um, I think there are good coaches and good therapists out there on all sides of the issue. I don't think they have to be opponents, although they have been in the past. I've had therapists dismiss me. I've had psychologists be like, oh, you're a, you're a coach. Mm, right. And then kind like, of, yep, I am. <laughs> you're a therapist or whatever. Right. Um, congratulations to you. But it's, um, there are two different modalities that use some overlapping tools to the point that there have been lawsuits uh, where colleges of psychology have accused life coaches in particular of practicing therapy without a license. Um, they've never won that case, which actually, um, and I think it was in, in Colorado when it was done and the psychology, the, the college of psychology pushed the case, lost the case, and we're going to appeal it. And all their members said, no, don't appeal it because now we can charge as much as coaches do. And so a whole bunch of therapists now say therapist and coach therapy and life coaching or counseling and life coaching. And so now instead of a bunch of coaches practicing bad psychology without a license, you had a bunch of good psychologists practicing bad coaching um, <laughs> because they were trying to apply the rules and ethics of therapy to coaching and to the modality of coaching. And that gets confused by, again, certain organizations that claim to be the, the, the key uh, certification or licensing organizations for coaches. Mm -hmm. You can't license certification organizations for coaches and they have their codes of ethics. And uh, two of them who were started by the same guy have basically the same code of ethics. And that code of ethics is word for word copy pasted from a college of psychology code of ethics from one of the states. Mm -hmm. um, it, they adjusted a few things here and there, but it's almost, and it basically makes, if you follow it, you basically make coaching utterly useless. You, you make it practicing psychology without a license, which I think is a very, very bad idea. 
that and that is is for you is that a lot of the pushback because you you've been a coach now for quite some time Joss both you know kind of personally with a lot of just the way the mm-hmm. life your life is taking you and then also as a professional business coach now yeah. so there's you have to distinguish between those those practices right a coach practice versus a therapeutic practice is very yep. very it's yeah. important isn't it yeah absolutely I think, I think there's room, there's room and actually necessity for all of them. I think there are certain types of therapy that are based on anecdotal mistakes throughout Mm. history. Um, Hmm. relationship coaching that involves hitting each other. That's, that's one. Um, (laughs) right. But, uh, but I think there are coaches out there. There are coaches that have never bothered to learn the tools. There are a lot of people in the coaching space that like me had a background or a, a skill set, or a natural talent, or just they just attracted broken people coming to them mm-hmm. saying, "Hey, can, can I get you?" There are a ton of people out there who have never bothered to go and learn the actual skill set. That I think is just as dangerous as a therapist who's trying to to act as a coach, or a coach who thinks that he can do the same things or she can do the same things that a therapist can do. I think it's not stay in your lane because there is overlap. Yeah, yeah. but I. I I, I firmly believe that there is, with anything, there are skills to be learned. And if you pick up those tools and you, you refine your skills with those tools and you learn what they can and can't do and what, where they are properly used versus where you're improvising. Um, so as a, as a metaphor, if, if you have a toolbox that includes a sledgehammer and a saw and say screwdrivers, other tools, whatever, but you've got a, you've got a sledgehammer and a saw and you, you know what a sledgehammer is for. Mostly it's for knocking down big things. It's for bringing, you generally aren't going to use a sledgehammer to drive a nail, mm. right? Cause it's not what it's for. It's too big. You're likely to thump your thumb, mm-hmm. right? But if you have something, you have a nail that you need to drive into a board and the only tool you have is a sledgehammer. You know what? The sledgehammer can do the job. It's not necessarily going to be as efficient. There might be collateral damage, but you have a tool that can work. To me, that is, there are coaching tools. Like, and, and again, I'm not saying that coaching is a sledgehammer. It's a big blunt instrument. I'm not saying therapy is a big, like, right? I'm just, it's just, it's, it's just a metaphor, guys. Mm-hmm. I could have said mm-hmm. screwdriver. It doesn't matter. If you, have, if you have something that a client needs to accomplish and you're a therapist and they need coaching, well, the therapy code of ethics says that you shouldn't try coaching. You should say, this is not my, you know, this isn't my space. You need to go do this. But very few therapists will recognize that. They'll think it is a therapy problem. They'll go, oh, no, it's a nail. I've got my sledgehammer right here, right? We can, we can take care of that nail. Um, they may or may not recognize it's the best tool for it, but it's a tool that will get the job done. Same mm-hmm. with coaches. We've got tools and we go, you know what? You know, I'm not a therapist. I'm not going to try and, I'm not going to try and be your therapist here. But in order for us to move forward, you got to fix this thing. I recommend you go see a therapist. But if you can't go see a therapist or, or we needed this right now because we're in an emergency situation and we got to get you off this ledge. Well, you know what? Here's my saw. <laughs> the best thing here might have been a razor blade, but I got a saw. We'll get through it. It might be messier. It might be more painful. Um, you're definitely going to need to go get more professional help to deal with the damage that we've caused by using the saw instead of the scalpel. Mm. You're right. But, and again, that might be another bad Probably, no, not might be. That is a terrible metaphor, but <laughs> the, the concept is 
we have some tools that can do some of the same things, but in slightly different ways. Some of them might be better or not. They might get the job done just fine. Um, it's important to not say, hey, I'm a coach, therefore I can do whatever a therapist can do, or to say, hey, I'm a therapist, therefore I can do whatever a coach can do. Um, you do different things. You do some of the same things, and even, and, but even when you do the same things, you're doing them in different ways usually. How do you distinguish those differences in your practice, Josh, when working, working with clients? I mean, does it, how, does it come up often where you like, I feel like I need a, you need a therapist or does, is. So in my coaching agreement, um, that I'll, that I'll work with people, I don't use it a lot with my business coaching clients because it's usually a slightly different thing. Although 90% of business problems are personal problems showing up in the business. So, um, mm -hmm. But I have a coaching agreement that says coaching is for people who are generally well, mentally well adjusted. It is, you know, it's not for, if you're feeling suicidal, if you're feeling, it's not for treating depression, it's not for treating anxiety, it's really not for treating anything, right? So we, we lay that out up front. We say, if you have these types of things, strongly recommend you seek the guidance of a therapist. If while working together as coach and client, I as a coach realize that, hey, you could benefit from therapy, I am going to suggest, you know what, you could maybe have you considered therapy for this particular thing or for that particular thing? Because I generally, um, I'm one of those people. I don't know how many of us there are. I don't want to say that there's not very many. I don't want to say that it's all, it's definitely not all of us, but I'm one of those people who <clears throat> having skill sets from both camps, having experienced both things, I'm one who can, who can very, I'm very good at going, this is the thing where you could, I think you could benefit from therapy. In, in particular, this type of therapy, right? I, I generally see where a therapist tool works versus where a coaching tool works. And the way I'll usually run it down is coaching is to take you from where you are now to where you want to go. Therapy generally mm -hmm. is for helping you deal with something in the past that is keeping you from going where you want to go now. Oh, I right? love that. That's so... Yeah. And, and where coaching and therapy overlap the most, I think is the cognitive model. Like, so the cognitive behavioral therapy, as it's described by, um, oh, who is it? I, I can't remember his name. Maybe he's, he's a therapy. He teaches cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, he generally says other schools of therapy, other, other types of therapy, their job is to go down as deep as possible into the muck that is your past and dig up all of the things, dig them out of the dirt, bring them up to the light so you can examine them, pull them out, figure them out, let go of them or put them in their proper place, which then allows you to move forward. The cognitive model typically starts at the top and will go deep, but only as deep as we need to go to cut free whatever anchor you're attached to so that you can move forward and, and deal with it. Um, I think coaching is similar to that. Coaching is, is we'll, go, we'll go backwards if we need to. But if I go backwards and I find that there's an anchor attack that, that is holding you in place as a coach, it's not my job to come in with my bolt cutters and try and cut that chain. My job is to go, Hey, have you noticed this anchor? Yeah. Okay. Would you like to release yourself from that anchor? And if you say, yeah, Hey, I've got, you know, here's the clip right here. I'm out. I'm good. Great. I've done my job. We've moved along. Um, however, if you're like, well, I'd love to, but. Then my job as a coach is to not go, okay, well here, let me pull out my hacksaw and come down there and cut through that. Again, that's a tool I have if we absolutely need to. But generally speaking, I'm going to say, you know what you could really use? You could really use a welder. 
who knows how to come down there and cut this thing free in a way that's going to completely cut it off, completely free you from it, clean up all of the garbage, et cetera, and, and, and let you, I, you go see a therapist, mm, right? Yep. And it, it, it's up to the client whether they want to go see that therapist or not. So that, I, and I love that distinction. So it, does that come up often in your, in your practices? Cause I know you do business coaching. I know you do some life coaching and personal coaching as well, but like what's, does that come up yeah, super often? So, or? Not as much anymore in the, in older days when I was doing more of the relationship side of things and working in, um, some of the more, I was dealing with a lot of folks who were doing, dealing with alternative lifestyle things, um, stuff like that. And it came up a lot, it came up a lot in that space. Um, because a lot of that stuff has to do with past trauma, has to do with, um, not being able to, have, uh, processed certain things or, or, you know, made certain decisions, stuff like that. And so quite often it's say, you know what, this is a thing where, you know, you might want to go see a therapist. I have concerns about that now, um, because I've seen, uh, particularly in Canada where, where I live, there's a, there's a certain amount of ideology, I think that is in the professional space where it's, it's less now about actually helping the client deal with and process these things and more about labeling them mm. and going, okay, this is who you are. This is what you like. Like I've dealt with, I dealt with a lot of folks in that space where, um, so one example is had someone who would come to me and say, I have these things that I want to solve, but I can't because I have depression, right? I'm happy to work with you as my coach and help me solve these things that are coach focused things, but I have this depression thing and it's going to come up because it always comes up. And I'm not expecting you to, I like, I know you can't deal with it. That's a, that's a, it's a therapy thing. Um, but it's going to get in the way of solving these other things. And my deal is, all right, well, are you dealing with it, with the, with the depression? It's like, well, no, I mean, I've talked with different therapists. I don't want to do this. I don't want to be on the drugs and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, okay. Um, actually they did want to be on the drugs. They were on drugs that they had, they had, they had self-diagnosed. So in Canada, you, you have to go to your general physician first and you had to go to your, your family doctor first. They get a referral for psychology, unless you're suicidal. That's a different thing. But if you're not suicidal, you're just depressed. So what you do is you start feeling these things. You go on the internet, you look up on WebMD or whatever. What are the, what are the, what are my symptoms? Like, oh, these are the symptoms of depression. You're like, oh, well, I've got eight out of, eight out of 10 of them. So you go to your doctor, your family doctor, and you say, hey, I think I've got depression. And your doctor says, well, what do you got? He's like, well, I've got eight out of 10 of the symptoms. Here they are. And the doctor says, well, yeah, that sounds like depression. Literally textbook definition of depression. Um, well, I've got these samples that I, I'll give you a referral. It's probably going to take a month or two or six to get you in. But in the meantime, I've got these samples of a low-grade antidepressant that you can take. Okay, right? So you, you go home, you take the antidepressant. Well, in a large percentage of cases depression, of, of depression, it's situational depression, not clinical. Mm. Right? So you're depressed because of whatever's going on, whatever you're experiencing. By the way, I'm not bagging on depression. If you have depression, go get help. It, whatever help you get can be very helpful, but situational depression does not diminish depression. That's the no, exactly right. Like right. that's yeah. Yeah. But it's very easy in Canada to experience situational depression, self-diagnose as being depressed, go to your family physician, get a referral to, uh, get a psychi psychiatric referral or a psychological referral and be given low dose antidepressants as a sample. Well, the situation has changed. You start taking the sample, the situation changes. The depression goes away. By the time you get to see the psychiatrist, like, okay, so tell me what you were dealing with. I was dealing with this, right? You had this, you were having depression. 
the doctor gave you pills. How are you doing? Well, I've taken the pills. The depression seems to have gone away. Great. We'll just give you a, a lifetime prescription for these antidepressants. Because obviously it was the pills, right? So now that doesn't happen all the time, but it can. And so I was dealing with, with some of that. So here was a person that, in my opinion, had self-diagnosed depression. I wasn't going to touch the depression. It's not my space. I said, go to a therapist. They do or they don't. But what I did with them is I started working on, I said, well, we're not going to deal with depression. If depression comes up, the depression comes up, you wind up staying at home, you miss a, a session, whatever, we'll figure it out. We're going to deal with these other things you want to deal with. Six months into working with them, they come to me and they say, you know what, I realized something. So what's that? It's been five and a half months since I've had a bad day. Like, a and a bad day was a day where depression just overran their lives. They stayed in bed. They, they couldn't function, right? Mm. Like, it's been five and a half months since I had a bad day. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. Like, in fact, I haven't felt more than, like, mildly down in three, four months. I'm like, yeah, that's interesting. Because what we had done is the depression in this particular individual's case, not a doctor, not a therapist, not a diagnosis, but in this particular individual's case, what it looks like from my perspective is that depression was their comfortable problem. Mm. They had all of these other things that they wanted to change and fix that weren't good in their life. But as long as they were depressed, they didn't have to face them. They didn't have to deal with them. They could just go, oh, my life is terrible, but it's the depression that's keeping me from doing anything good. So I can be comfortable in, being, in having the label of I'm depressed. Mm, yep. But once we fixed all those problems, there was no reason for the depression. Now, we didn't fix all the problems in two weeks. I think, yeah. But once we started working through that stuff and accomplishing those things and moving them forward, there was no more reason. There was no more need for the depression to defend themselves from these other things. And I've seen stuff like that to a greater or lesser extent many times, right? I see. Um, so do I see that a lot? Do I, where I have to say, hey, I think you need a therapist? I will always say to somebody, hey, have you considered talking to a therapist about this? Why would, why not? Why so? What experiences you, have you had? My role is to deal with these things. If the therapist stuff needs dealing with, you should go talk to a therapist about it. Now, there have been a number of times where I've said, you can't do these things. You do not have the capacity to move from where you are at forward with any of the tools that I have to give you until you let go of this giant anchor. Mm. I cannot remove this anchor for you. You have fully welded it in a chain around your waist that I do not have the tools to cut through. You have to go to a therapist. I can't, it, it makes no sense to continue working with me until you've gone and worked through that. So I've, I've for lack of a better term, fired clients because they needed a therapist, not a coach. Mm. And, and nothing that I would do with them was going to work until they took care of that problem. It's not super common, but it is a thing that I think coaches ethically should do if they re once they realize that that's a situation. And I think it happens. I think, well, I know it happens. I think it happens. <laughs> it's, it's not uncommon. It's not every day. It's not most people, but it's, it's common enough that a coach should know how to spot it and know how to go, hey, look, this is, this is I think, what you need to do. Now, there are times you go, you know what, if you go talk to a therapist and start dealing with this, we can have exponential results if you go start talking to the right kind of therapist. So go talk to a therapist, come back to me in a month and we'll see what, what's going on. And I've had that happen and, and done well with it. But generally speaking in business coaching, um, most of the time when I suggest a therapist, it's, it's for relationship, it's marriage counseling. Mm, yep. Um, 
because I'll deal with a lot of folks, family owned businesses or, um, the business owner or the CEO is making, they feel like they're making all the same decisions in the same way that they would make them at work. So they've, they've built this business up. They had 10 years of great stuff happening. And then all of a sudden for the last year and a half, everything they touch instead of turning to gold turns to crap. And they're like, I haven't changed the way I, I look at things. I, I, I follow all the same processes. I don't know what's going on. And you look at it, it's like, oh, well, actually what you've got going on is you've got, you've got family problems at home and that's affecting how you show up at work. You might want to consider talking to a therapist or, or going to a counselor uh, with your family and getting that squared away. I see. Well, and, and that's, sounds like that perspective component for you, Joss, has been a very powerful piece for you throughout your life, really helping people see that perspective. In a lot of ways, you're a mirror for many people. You're just holding up information. You're sitting there. I think, I think there's a, a, a lack of appreciation for the power to be able to be a clean kind of present human for somebody, ask yep. questions, reflect back to them so that they can see what's happening inside themselves. It's when we're inside ourselves, we get in our heads, we're spinning out. You mentioned it, even, even the, the, the coach, the client you just talked about who had depression, quote unquote. And again, really? I'm not, we're not, dimin I'm not diminishing nope. that depression, but it was related to situational components. They work through those things with you. And then all of a sudden they not feel depressed anymore. I think that that can be the case for a lot of people when we're in yeah. scenarios, we're stuck in our head, we're stuck in our ways, but working with a coach can kind of jostle you out of the everyday rot. Yeah. And that, that work alone can help you break out and kind of become more of who you feel you need to be. And I mean, has it been your journey, uh, uh, some of that in your practice? Yeah, ab absolutely. I think there's, you know, there's the old expression, it's all in your head, right? And that used to be a dismissive, mm -hmm. oh, it's all in your head. Well, um, and then we've gone, there's some people who've gone the other way that think, yeah, everything is in your head, mm. right? And I'm, I'm not, but I don't know if it's all in your head, but there is never not some part of it in your head. Mm. And if you can adjust where your head is at or where things are at in your head, it's going to give you a much better opportunity and much better leverage to handle whatever the part of it is that isn't in your head. Mm. Right. So, and I think that that's, there's, there's so much science behind, you know, and this is where the whole concept of, sorry, I'm not going to finish a sentence here. I'm just going to jump from subject to subject. So let me try this again. There's a bunch of science behind uh, what has become now the school of positive psychology, right? I don't know that I go all the way down that road with positive psychology, but there is science that shows if you come at something from a more positive perspective, if you can have, if you can have that, that gratitude, um, if you can have even a certain sense of disassociation, so it doesn't even necessarily have to be positive, but just being able to go, okay, I am not, and we've talked about this uh, mm -hmm. together too, you know, I am not the thing, I am experiencing the thing, mm. right? All of those types of things, which it's just, we're just shifting. And Tony Robbins says, <laughs> right, it's, it's that, it's that stool of any, any state that you're in stands on that stool with three legs. And those three legs are focus, meaning, and then either physiology or what you've decided to do about it. Uh, depending on which, which version of the story he's telling. Mm. Right. And if you can change it, you can rattle any one of those three legs, you tip the, st the state over and now you've got a new state. So, uh, where was I going with all that? Yeah. The concept, like you said, even just holding up that mirror and giving that little bit of space for that person to go, oh, maybe this isn't me. Maybe it's something inside of me, or maybe it's something external to me, or maybe it's, um, an adjustment but it gives them that space. And when you have that space, then you can get some leverage, right? Mm. Uh, 
uh, where was I? Ah, yes. So uh, Wayne Dyer, who actually did have a, he was a psychologist. He was, um, yeah. He was, Dr. Wayne Dyer. Yeah. Yeah. But he, we had that thing, like he, his, his deal was uh, in the book, Excuses Be Gone, he talks about, I know we're way over time, sorry. Um, in, that, in that book, Excuses Be Gone, he, he says, there, it's a two-part statement. And most people stop after the first half. The first half is, I am where I am solely as a result of the choices I've made to this point or the decisions I've made to this point. Okay. Now, the vast majority of people who hear that stop right there and they have one of two reactions. Either the reaction is, that's not true. I didn't ask for that drunk driver to hit me. Like all these different things, right? And, and we, can, we can do the cold heart argument and go back and it's like, well, you chose to be at that spot at that time where that drunk driver happened to be. And then he chose to intersect with you. If you hadn't made this series of choices that put you there at that time, maybe it didn't happen, mm -hmm. right? You can do that, but I'll leave that alone. That's not really the point of, of this conversation. But you have the people who argue that, ah, this was done to me. I didn't choose to experience the th certain things. It's like, no, okay, cool. Then you have the other half who go, yeah, it's absolutely right. I am where I am because of the choices I've made. And I always make crappy decisions and I don't know how to make good decisions and I'll never make good decisions because I'm a terrible person. Because I'm like, whoa, mm. that's also equally wrong. Mm. Like it's, the second half of the statement fixes all of that. The second half of the statement is, and I have always made the best decisions I knew how to make at the time. Mm. And the beauty of that is it gives you responsibility back. It stops the blame. When you have the responsibility, you have the power. You have the ability to respond, which is a lame thing, but, and not at all the way that the word, the etymology of the word works, but it works for us in English, <laughs> right? It's like you have the responsibility to change things, to take that power. But the other thing that it does is it resolves and it relieves you of blame. Because this is a thing that, that Dyer liked to say a lot, especially in his later years, um, after he had gone into his Tao Te Ching work, is, is that you can't expect more of someone than the best that they know how to do. Mm. You can teach them how to do better and then you can expect more of them mm. if they agree to accept that responsibility. Mm, that's right? key too, right? But that's also you. So that statement of, and I've always made the best decisions I knew how to make at the time, doesn't mean you didn't know there were better decisions to make. There is not a smoker on this planet. Well, there's not a smoker in the Western world who thinks cigarettes are good for them, right? Every single one of them knows that it would be better if they didn't smoke. There's a better decision to be made. It's not that they don't know there's a better decision. It's they don't know how to make that decision mm. for whatever reason, because they've, they've let themselves fall into addiction and, and they don't know how to not let that addiction take control, or it's because they don't know how to interact with pe the, these people who are their friends. If they're not standing outside at the smoke break for 15 minutes and lighting up and smoking, it's a bunch of, they don't know, they don't know how to make the better decision. That to me as a coach is a big factor in what I do. I help you learn how to make better decisions. And then like a personal trainer, I help you build the muscle of making those better decisions. Because like we said earlier, just because you know that going to the, to the gym and lifting a 50 pound dumbbell could make you stronger. If you've never lifted anything heavier than a full fork, you have no idea how to lift that dumbbell. Like you might know, you might understand the basic concept of walk up, extend hand, grasp dumbbell, flex. But 
there are ways to do that that are safer than others. There are ways to do that that will help to, to actually build muscle versus the ways that will destroy muscle, i.e. grabbing that 50 pound dumbbell, never having lifted weight before and yanking up on it. That's probably going to damage things, right? Mm, yep. well, the same thing. If you say, hey, I want to I learn how to make a better decision around smoking. If I just say, hey, you know what? Go, go cold turkey. Tell all of your friends I don't smoke anymore and you guys shouldn't either. It's just terrible for you. We're going to create damage. We're mm. not going to help anything because your friends are all going to be like, hey, dude, you know, and they're going to flip you all kinds of fun partial hand waves and they're going to tell you you suck and they're going to stop being your friends and now you're going to be feeling alone and you're going to you're going to have missed all of those things and you're going to be socially ostracized and you're going to be lonely and when you're lonely that's going to feed into depression and anxiety and guess what depression and anxiety feed into your habits of self-calming by smoking and so not only we're we not going to fix the smoking not only we're we going to be doing damage we're going to do damage and you're going to be back now with all the damage done still smoking and all your friends are going to be like hypocrite right so don't just go yank on that 50 pound dumbbell. Learn how to start with bodyweight exercises or resistance or mm. get someone who can help you learn how to make that better decision and then practice making that, those better decisions in a way that helps build your strength and helps build your ability to continue to make those better decisions. Mm. That's what I do. I love it, Joss. In a lot of ways. So it's the, the awareness, the recognition of an idea is really not much of value if we don't take that awareness, that idea, apply it, especially in methodical ways, learning small ways, iterating, and having a coach, mm -hmm. somebody there around you can help you start small in practical ways and build up and iterate over time and improve that. That's why some yep. of the highest performers in the world, best performers in the world, I have coaches too. It's, it's yep, absolutely the nature of the, the work, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, like, look at, if you want to look at those high-end athletes, they all started playing when they were kids. Now, mm -hmm. some of them started playing when they were, before they were able to walk. Others waited till their teens and their prodigies, whatever. You know, they, they started when they were kids. They, they figured out how to hold, like in, in the case of hockey, they figured out how to hold a stick and how to skate and how to smack the puck around. Like, they didn't need a coach for that. They needed someone to go, okay, here are ways to do that better. Here are mm -hmm. things that you can do that don't seem like it has anything to do with what you're doing on the field or on the court or on the ice or on the track. But if you do these things over here, they're going to make this over here better, right? That's a coach. That's, that can be a mentor versus, yeah, well, we won't get into like the, <laughs> the consultant falls apart when you try and put that, <laughs> That's, put that yeah. in my metaphor. Would, the consultants, consultants are, are just their own, own, they're their yeah. own. Yeah. But no, like you said, it's, it's, it's deciding. I don't know how to make, I don't know how to make better decisions in this particular area. And I want to. Great. Who can I find that clearly knows how to make these better decisions? And those better, like that, this might be things about addiction. It might be things about being better at business. Yeah. Maybe figuring out how do I, how do I play cards better? Like whatever it is, whatever be a better husband, is, be a better father. It could be anything. Right? Abs absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Ask yourself, who do I know or who, who can I get to know that can teach me this skill set and help me practice this skill set? Now you still have to do the practice. That's you the key. You still have to do build up put that in the work memory. yeah got to put in that work but if you go find a person that's step one you can you can do it on your own to a certain extent absolutely you can go google it everything in the world all, there's there's very little real information out there leaving politics aside there's very little <laughs> real information that you can't find out there by googling or youtubing or TikToking or whatever it is you can buy it. now you'll find a bunch that contradicts itself mm-hmm 
right? You'll find people who say, this is the way. And you have people say, oh, that's not the way. This is the way. And so you have to thread through all of that. And then you have to practice. And then you have to figure out, okay, how does this apply to me? And, and et cetera. So there's doing it yourself. It can be done. And there are many, many people who have successfully, although painfully in most cases, figured out themselves by finding a mentor online. If you can't, if you don't have somebody nearby you that you can go talk to and have a relationship with, finding somebody online, absolutely go do that. Read a book, Google search, watch the YouTube videos, et cetera. That's a great place to start. But as soon as you can, I highly recommend finding someone that you can interact with that can give you a little bit of that mentoring side as well, or help cut the learning curve. So instead of going, well, these five people say do it this way. These four people say do it this way. And this person over here says do it another way. What's the right way that, for me? It's like, well, if you have someone who knows what each of those three ways is and when they're properly applied and when they're not and who's full of crap and who isn't, they can sit down with you and go, well, tell me, what is it that you want to accomplish? What is it that you like? How do you prefer to approach the world, show up for this thing, et cetera, et cetera? Great. Then it seems like for you, it's possible that this is the right one. Why don't we take a look at that and give that a try? And then they can watch you as you're learning how to, you know what, actually turns out you think you like doing it this way. And if you actually did like doing it this way, this would be the best way for you. But your actual default way of doing it, the way that you seem most comfortable when you just close your eyes and do it is actually this way. So maybe we should go with this tool instead of that one and you'll get much further, right? So it's that outside, it's that, that external perspective. Yeah. You can say, this is what you look like. Like you say, hold up the mirror and say, this is what you look like when you're closing your eyes and swinging randomly at a golf ball. What if you did it this way instead? Mm, I love it, Josh. Well, Josh, this has been fantastic. There's a lot of good. We, we got in the weeds a bit on therapy and the world of therapy and coaching, the distinction there, which I really appreciated, but also a lot of practical things to, to apply in your life. I think ultimately one of the things that really stood out for me from your perspective is, is creating some space, just mm. a little dissonance, you called it earlier, in our thoughts, in our actions. Because sometimes that little bit of space can be the thing that we're, that can really help propel us forward into the kind of the next phase of our existence by, yeah. by pulling back and, and getting ourselves out of it. I think sometimes we muck ourselves up with, with things that aren't necessarily, necessarily us. Yeah, absolutely. In and out, which is cool. Yeah. So Josh, that, that's, um, that's another good hour long conversation right there. I know, keep... honestly, I was like that, we really could have went out from that because I've talked about that before too. And it's, it really is just such a powerful practice, but these little things, I think you learn over time, you apply them in your life and they can, they add up over time. It really does compound. So yeah. Josh, for anyone that's listening out there, what would be your, your kind of final takeaway? Where can they get in touch with you? I'll link to everything in the show notes, obviously, but. Gotcha. Um. Well, the easiest way to get a hold of me is go search Joss Willard. Um, I have a website, JossWillard.com. That's where the, most of the business coaching stuff is. I'm on uh, Twitter and no, well, I'm on Twitter, but I'm mostly on LinkedIn and, and a little bit on Facebook and Instagram. So search for Joss Willard, you'll find me. Um, final thoughts, biggest, biggest takeaway. I think without trying to be terribly profound, because whenever I do that, I fall flat on my face. Um, <laughs> what, there's a lesson there, children. Um, I think, I think it comes to this. It goes back to one of the reasons why that dire quote is, is one of my, my favorite. Wherever you're at, wherever situation you find yourself in, as hopeless as it may seem, that's not you. It's where you're at. And because of that, you can change it. Now, you might need help to change it. But 
you can start. And if nothing else, you can start by realizing, I want this to change and I'm willing to get help to do it. You might not know where help is. You might feel like, I, I, I know I need help. I want this to change. I know I need help, but there's nobody coming to save me. I've, I'm in a spot where it's just me and I'm trying to survive. Okay, and then help yourself. Or come listen to podcasts like this. Come like, this is a form of, of getting help. This is a form, right? This is, this is starting. Mm. It's recognizing you want it to change and that you're willing to take steps to get help, even if it starts with helping yourself. And when you realize that, there is nothing that can stop you. Because as a, a, the trite saying goes, everything will be okay in the end. And if it's not okay, it's not the end. Mm. No, oh, Joss, that was a great, great takeaway, man. I love that. Well, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. Ex excellent ending there to that. It really, it's a great way to close out the episode here. So I really appreciate your time. For the audience, the ears, the eyes, I appreciate your time as well. Hopefully you're enjoying the content. Hopefully you enjoyed this conversation with Joss and I. I'll make sure to link in the show notes his website. If you want to have any interest in working with him as a coach, he's a guy that's active on LinkedIn and Twitter. As he mentioned earlier, he's around. So I certainly appreciate y'all's time. And until next time. Thank you for listening to Order Within. If you found the episode helpful, please consider sharing, rating, and subscribing. New episodes will be released every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Until next time, y'all.